That's where we'll be. A reminder to you also that if you want your children to stay with you in the service, they are certainly welcome to. But K-4 through are able to go to Kids Praise uh, if they would like. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to be in your word again. I thank you for our children, Lord, as they leave our service. We are so grateful, God, for uh, our children who are here this morning. We know many of them are away on the Young Families and Professionals camping trip. We thank you for our kids that are here. We pray, God, you would bless their time in the word this morning and bless our time. Make us, Lord, like little children and how we receive your word, that we would have a childlike faith, God, and that we would trust you as our father. The way that a child implicitly trusts their father, Lord, we pray that we would trust you as our father, trust the word that you have spoken to us, and that we would rejoice in how you save this morning, for that is what we see in the text this morning. You are a saving God, a converting God, a transforming God, and I pray you would do a saving and a converting and a transforming work with your word even now as I preach. Uh, Father, I pray that you would give me the grace to do this work, that you would get me out of the way, and that you would uh, put the spotlight on your son, Jesus. He is the one that is worthy of all glory, worthy of all of our attention. And so we turn our eyes to his saving grace. We pray that your spirit would give us understanding in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you had a wolf prowling around outside of your house, you might have a few solutions on how you would handle that. You might say, well, I'm going to call animal control, right? I, I'm, I'm going to get them involved. Or I'm going to get out my gun, and I'm going to take care of this situation the old-fashioned way. Or maybe you just wait it out. Maybe it's like, I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to wait it out. It'll go away by the morning. But here's what you would not do. You would not consider going out to the wolf and reasoning with it, talking to it. Be like, come on, man, stop being so wolfy in the way that you act. Stop being so wolf-like in your nature. You would not attempt to change the nature of the wolf. You would know that it's hopeless. A wolf is a wolf. It's not going to stop being a wolf. It wants to kill because this is what a wolf does. And yet this morning, here in Acts 9, there's a wolf prowling around the Lord's church. A wolf that is seeking to rip the church apart and drag her people off into prison and ultimately to death. A wolf that wants to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth. A wolf that has blood on its mouth and death on its mind. And surely this wolf would never change. We might hope that the authorities would stop the wolf. We might hope that we could evade the wolf. We might hope that the wolf would simply go away, but we would not expect that the wolf would change. And yet, that is the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel can and does transform wolves. And this morning we'll see it do just that. The last time we saw Saul, he was ravaging the church in Acts 8 verse 3. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He had approved of the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and now he is seeking more destruction. And as we get to Acts 9, he has moved beyond Jerusalem to Damascus, and he is working with the authorities to try and bring an end to this movement of Christianity once and for all. 
But we are going to see Jesus interrupt Saul's plans and the power of Christ's gospel, which is a wolf-changing power, will come into Saul's life. We'll see how the gospel rearranges the entire direction of a man instantaneously. All former plans interrupted and ended. All former desires discontinued and destroyed. All former pride arrested and annihilated. And so let's read the passage, Acts 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to, Christi- to J- Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Three teaching points for us this morning in this passage. We will see, number one, that in conversion, Christ makes us into a new creation. Number two, in conversion, Christ grants us new kinsmen. And number three, in conversion, Christ gives us a new commission. But we start this morning by looking at the change that is wrought in Saul by God in this passage. There's no doubt that as Acts 9 begins, Saul's character is polluted and depraved. He is breathing out murderous threats against the church in verse 1. And he has taken his persecution efforts to the next level by conspiring with the high priest to get letters authorizing him to hunt in the synagogues of Damascus for Christians. You see in verse 2 that he is looking for any that belong to the way. This is just a way of referring to Christians. 
There's a few times in Acts that Luke refers to Christians in this manner, calls them the way, and it seems to be uh, a title that Christians would have been using for themselves. That's why Luke is including it in the passage. And it is referring to living in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we do as believers. And so this is another name for believers. And so as he is looking for those that belong to the way, men or women, he's looking for believers that he might bring bound to Jerusalem. These violent intentions that Saul has in his heart, it's the absolute fruit of his dead heart. It's the natural outworking of a heart that is pridefully opposed to God. It's the practice of the hatred that he harbors in his heart toward God and toward God's people. It's the produced fruit of the depravity within him. This is what Jesus taught in Mark 7. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. See, the world will tell you that people are basically good and people are born good. But Jesus tells us differently. He says, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So all the things that make our society horrible, all the things that corrupt this world, they're coming out of people. Sin comes out of a man because it is what lies in a man. When Adam sinned in the garden, he fell, and all of humanity fell with him and sinned in him. Sin and death spread to all men. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, talking about Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam is our representative before God as humanity. If right now Joe Biden were to launch a missile at China, China would take that as an attack from all of us. They would be like, well, it's just Joe. Yeah, it's just Joe getting a little wild. Don't worry about the rest of America. No, they would say Joe is the representative for America and President Biden has attacked us, therefore America has attacked us. And so when Adam, our representative, sinned against God, it's like we all sinned against him. We all rebelled against him. Adam is our federal head. And all of mankind descending from Adam fell in him and sinned with him in his first transgression. Death has spread to all of us as a result. And this spiritual deadness is explained by Paul in Ephesians 2. It represents who he was before he knew Christ. So here he is. Here is Paul the Apostle. Here is Saul the Persecutor. He's talking about the state of his heart before he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, there's a lot of people who make the mistake of thinking 
And I'm not talking about people in the church. There's a lot of people that are sitting around this morning and they're not going to church and they're, they're getting ready for a, a full slate of football games or they watch the F1 race this morning or they're, they're out walking the dog at the park or they're fishing. They're doing anything but being here, right? And they think, well, I don't really need Jesus. My life is going pretty well because they have bought into the lie that Christianity is just the acceptance of some teaching. It's just the acceptance of some morality that will keep you out of trouble, that will help you with your anxiety, that ultimately, if you're a good enough person, will get you to heaven. And so they think, well, I don't need it. My life's fine. I mean, you know, I go to the doctor to get the anxiety medicine, and my politician and the people that I listen to talk about politics on TV all week long on 24-7 news media, they tell me what my morality should be. I've got all the money I need. I don't need Jesus. I don't need to sprinkle a little morality on my life. I'm good. But that's not the message of Christianity, is it? We know that. The message is not, you're a good person. You just need a little help to get yourself together. A little help to have a happier life and ultimately go to heaven. No. The message is, you are not a good person. That your entire soul needs saving. That there is no hope for you outside of an act from God. In fact, what many fail to realize is that sin renders you completely unable to even respond to God. Because of Adam's fall, human beings are born, cut off from God, not knowing God. And we know this. We know something is wrong, and so from an early age, we start trying to do good works to atone for the sins that we know we are committing. So we want to be nice. We want to give things away. We want to be kind. We want to help people. But what the Bible tells us is that even these good works are just filthy rags before the Lord. Isaiah 64, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Do you know why your good works, apart from Christ, are just filthy rags before God? It's because they're rooted in all sorts of awful pride. They're coming out of a prideful heart that is opposed to God. The river of our souls are poisoned by our stiff-necked rebellion against God. And any good thing that comes out of your natural life is going to be filthy before God because the water is polluted at the source. The nature of our souls are sinful and anything they produce will be sinful. And that is why even the best moment that you have morally apart from God, that you can bring before Him and say, here's the best work I've conjured up. Here's the best thing I can offer you that I've done on my own. And you lay it before Him. It could be given $5 billion away to solve world hunger. And you lay it before Him. It's still filthy rags if it's rooted in a prideful heart that is opposed to Him. And that puts us at terrible odds with God it puts us in danger of judgment, and that is exactly where Saul finds himself in Acts 9. He's so backwards that his murderous threats sound righteous to his own polluted ears. He thinks, I'm serving God. I'm binding up all these people that belong to the way. I'm taking them to Jerusalem. I'm serving God. But these works that he counts as the best of his hands, they're just filthy rags. They're exposed by Christ for being rotten. And so, as he's on his way, a light shines from heaven all around him. 
And he learns that the voice speaking to him is Jesus. We can go to Acts 22 and Acts 26 to get some commentary from Paul himself on his own conversion story. He retells his conversion a few times in those chapters. And so in Acts 22, verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way to the death. There's that term again, the way. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. For uh, from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. Luke says in Acts 9 that Saul fell to the ground upon seeing this light from heaven and he hears a voice speaking to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In Acts 26, Paul tells us that he heard an additional line from the Lord Jesus. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then here's the additional line from Jesus. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. The goad was a long pointy stick that was used by the farmer to jam in the back of the leg of an ox to get him going. He goaded him, if you will. If the ox were to kick back at the goad, it only causes the ox more pain. The pain of the goad when it is kicked into, as well as the pain of the farmer continuing to prod with the goad, it would get the ox ultimately to listen. So the message from Jesus is clear. Are you going to listen to me, Saul? Are you going to keep kicking back against me? You're only going to keep hurting yourself. You will be miserable. You will experience the pain that a man or a woman feels when they try to fight with God. He's given instruction to rise and to go into the city and to follow instructions. He's rendered blind. He's led by the hand to Damascus where he spends three days in darkness. He's not able to eat or drink. And this is how he will remain until Ananias lays hands on him in verse 18. The interesting thing about Saul's conversion story is that you really don't see him converted in the textbook sense. Ananias lays hands on him. Verse 18 says, Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized. You learn that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. But you don't see him converted in the sense that he doesn't cry out to God for salvation. He doesn't pray a prayer, certainly. And yet the fruits of salvation are not to be denied. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Following through in believer's baptism. You don't receive the Spirit of God unless you are a converted man or woman. And Ananias would not receive these instructions from the Lord for a man that is not regenerate. There is no doubt from the beginning of the passage to the end, Saul has become a Christian. 
So number one this morning, in conversion, Christ makes us into a new creature. In conversion, Christ makes us into a new creature. At the beginning of the passage, Saul is proud. Saul is haughty. He plans to march into Damascus, chest puffed out, ready to rain more wrath down upon the church, ready to bind the hands of Christians. But by the time he actually enters into Damascus, he's not binding the hands of Christians. He's being led by the hands of others. He can't see. He's not eating. He's been reduced to nothing. This is the perfect place for him to be in the hour of his conversion. Isaiah 66.2 says, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the temple that the Lord God longs to dwell in. Humble and contrite hearts that tremble at His word. Charles Spurgeon said, those that are farthest cast down are not farthest from God, but are nearest unto Him. God is near to a contrite heart, and it is the proper seat where His Spirit dwelleth. No man, saved by grace and brought to the heights of knowing God through Christ without first being brought low. And Saul is brought low here. We could consider all the things God used to bring Saul to salvation. The truth he had learned from the Scriptures and all the study that he had done under the rabbi Gamaliel. A faithful man like Ananias who's willing to come and lay hands on him. The death of Stephen, which we know from Saul mentioning that later on in Acts, that it had an effect on him. All these things God used to bring Saul to salvation, but at the end of the day, there is nothing more responsible for the salvation of Saul than meeting Jesus Christ face to face. That's it. When Saul hears Christ's voice in verses 5 and 6, it's what we would call a theophany. A visible appearance of God, right? Light shone all around him from heaven. Abram has one of these in Genesis 17 when he's 99 years old. The Bible says the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God makes covenant with Abram and as he does it, he does it face to face. And here Saul has a face-to-face coming together with the Holy God, Theophany. And it changes him. It is ultimately what alters him, being face-to-face with Christ. It revealed the glory of Christ to him. But it also revealed his depravity. And Saul turned from the persecution of Christ to trusting in Christ. Before, when Saul looked in the face of Jesus Christ, all he saw was darkness. And now he sees light. 2 Corinthians 4.6, here's his own words, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this changed everything for Saul. All you got to do is read his own biographical testimony in the Bible that his life was changed, was transformed. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. 
Saul is dead. A new creation has taken his place. And this new creation lives by faith in the Son of God. Romans 6, 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Same idea. The old man that was enslaved to sin is gone, is crucified, no longer is Saul trapped in his old sin nature. He's been given a new nature in Christ. He's no longer enslaved to sin. He's now free to serve God. He is free to offer his life up to God. And as he does it, and he brings his works before the Lord, they will not be filthy rags because they're no longer rooted in all of his pride. They're rooted in faith in Christ, which is credited to him as righteousness. And so the works that he brings before the Lord are actually accepted now. And his life is a living sacrifice. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Old man, dead and gone. New man in his place. What has occurred in his life is encapsulated by what happens with his physical sight. In verse 8, he's blinded. And though his eyes are open, he sees nothing. This physical state that he lives in for a time represents who he has been spiritually. He's a man who's read the Old Testament through and through, over and over. Loads of education. As zealous as he can be. An expert in the Hebrew. All that knowledge. Eyes wide open. But seeing nothing. But in verse 18, after Ananias lays hands on him, something like scales falls from his eyes and he's able to see after meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, after receiving the Spirit, Saul doesn't see the temple wrongly anymore. He doesn't see the law wrongly anymore. He doesn't see the priesthood wrongly anymore. He doesn't see the Old Testament wrongly anymore. The scales have fallen from his eyes. He's been given spiritual eyes. He sees Jesus Christ for who He is. Now he looks at Jesus and he says, He is the fulfillment of all the things I had all that blind knowledge about. Satan had blinded Saul from seeing the light of the Gospel and the glory of Christ, but no more. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He sees now. Saul sees the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ. The scales have fallen. And this is what every soul here needs. Everyone here this morning needs conversion. Everyone here this morning needs to be rescued from the sin they inherited from Adam and the death that it brings. Everyone this morning needs to come face to face with Jesus Christ and repent of their sin and trust in Him alone for salvation. Everyone needs the old man to die and the new man to be made alive. A new heart, a new nature, a new Lord, a new birth. The first one will not do. You must be born again. Let's keep going through the text. As we get to verse 10, we meet a new character, Ananias, a disciple of the Lord at Damascus, and he gets a call to do something very few of us in this room will ever get a call to do from God. That is to go and to minister to a terrorist. Is that not what he's been called to do? To go and minister to a terrorist. 
And you know what? He's got some reservations. In verses 11 and 12, he's told to go to the street called Straight, to the house of Judas, and to look for Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias responds in apprehension. Lord, I know Saul. I've heard of Saul. I know what Saul does. I can't be going to Saul. He's going to kill me. But the Lord doubles down on the instructions for Ananias in verses 15 and 16. And so Ananias is obedient, trusting that a vision has been given to Saul, that Ananias is going to come and lay hands on him. He goes to the home of Judas. He finds him there. And I love what happens. It says, so Ananias departed and entered the house. And there's two words you might just breeze by to get to the filling of the Spirit and the baptism, but don't breeze past them. It says, and laying his hands on him, he said, here's the two words, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Despite his hesitation, despite his apprehension, Ananias comes to this terrorist who has supposedly been converted. And he trusts God's work and God's Word. And he says, Brother Saul. So number two, in conversion, Christ grants us new kinsmen. We are a new creation, and He grants us new kinsmen. Ananias no longer sees Saul as an agitator of the church. He sees him as an adopted brother. And what this shows us is that while changes occur in conversion that transform our relationship to God, changes also trans, uh, occur in, tra- in uh, conversion that transform our relationships to one another. Our relationship to the Lord is changed. We're given peace with the Lord, but the way that you and I interact with one another is changed by what God has done in us in conversion. Because when we receive Christ by faith, we are saved by grace, we are called out of the world, and we are called into the family of the church. And here's the sort of family you find in the church. You find people that God loves with a covenant love. God loves the church. The church is filled with sons and daughters that He has had His eyes on from before time. In the church, you find a family that loves God. You find people responding to God's love for them with a passionate love that is reciprocated. He loves me first, but I love Him back. And in the church, we find people that are filled with the truth of the Lord, not filled with the lies of the world. We find people that are rejecting the world and they have filled their hearts and their minds with the truth of God. They're being sanctified. They're being transformed as a result. And what this does is it makes the church unlike any other institution on the earth. This is the only place that can claim it's a royal priesthood filled with those whom God loves. The church are the only ones who can say we're a holy nation populated by those who love God. We are a body held together by truth, ultimately grown by the truth, sustained by the truth of God. And so, as a Christian, when I come to the church, I find more family here than I find anywhere else on earth. I have new kinsmen, new brothers and sisters. And however different we might be, We are, by the gracious salvation of God, family. And this speaks to what A.W. Tozer called the two brotherhoods of humanity. He says, one is the brotherhood that we're all a part of as, as image bearers. 
but the other is more special. He says, there is a brotherhood of man which comes by the first birth and another brotherhood which comes through the second birth. By the grace of God, I want to dwell in that sacred, mystic brotherhood of the ransomed and redeemed, that fellowship of the saints gathered around the broken body and the shed blood of the Savior. Some of you were here a couple of years ago when I baptized Beckett, my oldest son. And it wasn't until I was there in the water with him and I was saying something that I find to be a fairly, it's a fairly routine thing we say. It's not a routine statement. It's a, it's a glorious statement, but it's a routine thing that we say. I don't think about it too much as I say it sometimes. You know, doing the baptism is what you say. It is my joy to baptize you as my brother in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in death, raised to walk in the newness of life. This is what we say. But as I went to say it to him, it hit me differently. He's my son, I said, and it's my joy to baptize you as my brother. And as those words came out of my mouth, I realized Beckett is not just my son anymore. He is indeed my brother. This is how powerful the Gospel is. It changes our relationships in an instant. Suddenly, those that Saul was seeking to kill have become his family his brothers and his sisters. He wanted to drag them off into prison, separate them from their families. Now they are his family. He wanted to end the way. Now he's part of the way. This is all evident in the fact that Ananias calls him brother. This is one of the greatest evidences you can have of conversion in your life. That you understand your place in the family of God and that you love the family of God. 1 John three fourteen through 18 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We're family, and when we love one another like family, it is a proof of God's converting work in us. The world hates one another, but not us. The world lives by might makes right, but not us. We forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. We give up the world's goods to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters. This is all love in action. Because we understand as Christians that love is not a feeling or a sentiment. God has shown us what love is by sending His Son to die for us on the cross. At the end of the day, love is in action. And what a great act of love it is for Saul to look at, or for Ananias to look at Saul and to say, Brother Saul. Would you be so quick to do the same? I don't know if I would. Would our church accept the repentance of such a renowned sinner? If one of the most renowned sinners in all of Seaford were to come here and were to repent of their sin and put their trust in Christ, would we accept them? If we believe the gospel, we have to. The gospel can make a killer a kinsman. The gospel can give a killer a whole new clan of kinsmen, a whole new family. That's how powerful the gospel is. Do we actually believe that? 
Let's head toward our conclusion this morning by looking at what the Lord says to Ananias in verses 15 and 16. Ananias reasonably questions whether or not he should be going near this Saul. In light of his character, in light of his actions, but the Lord assures him, no, a great thing has taken place. The direction of his life has changed. Right? He, he tells Ananias, he's not on a mission to abolish the church, he's on a mission to advance it now. He's not committed to murdering Christians anymore, he wants to make them. God tells Ananias, Saul is his chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And this is going to be a painful work. He's going to suffer for the name that he has persecuted. So number three this morning, in conversion, Christ gives us a new commission. We're a new creation. We get a new kinsman. And lastly, Christ gives us a new commission. Saul's new commission comes to pass in Acts 16 when he receives his Macedonian call. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is, this is Saul's commission as the apostle to the Gentiles. Saul's commission is ultimately what would see his name changed, if you've ever wondered. It was common in the ancient world to carry two names. Saul was the apostle's Hebrew name. Paul would have been his Roman name. And as God takes this brother further and further and further into the Gentile world, the use of his Hebrew name just disappears. Acts 13, verse 9, But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And that is the last time you hear the name Saul in the Scriptures. That's it. You, you don't hear that name anymore. You only hear his Roman name Paul going forward. And the use of his Roman name was evidence of the great commission that God had placed on his life. The commission that became his identity. He wasn't living anymore according to his own agenda, according to the traditions he had been raised in. He was a slave to Christ, sold out. When he writes to the Romans, in Romans 1.1, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So as he talks about his apostleship to the Gentiles, as he talks about being set apart by God, he calls himself a servant. Greek word doulos literally means slave. It's how he views himself. I don't have any rights anymore. I don't decide what I'm going to do, where I'm going to go, how I'm going to act. Jesus decides all of it. Christ is the master, I'm the slave. He says, do it, I do it. That's Paul's attitude. Particularly when it comes to reaching the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer this morning, Saul's story is no different than your story. You were totally living for your own agenda. You always chose out of your own desires which were born from your dead sinful nature, so every choice you made was driven by your powerful sinful self. Sure, there were moments of moral goodness and acts of kindness along the way, but even those were rooted in pride, not righteousness. 
But being converted, being freed from slavery to our own desires, being freed from a life of being enslaved to ourselves and putting ourselves first, we now can live for the commission that Christ has given us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's your commission. That is the new direction of your life. And this must become our identity. This must become who we are. Our decisions, our desires, our deeds, they should all be myopically driven by this new commission that's been placed in our lives. There was a time in which we believed we had all the authority over our lives. We believed the only thing that mattered was our own name, our own commandments. But we have left all that at the cross. The old man has been crucified there. That old man has, is, is dead And now we have new life and we live for Christ and we live to grow His kingdom by making disciples. And like Saul was destined to suffer, you might be destined to suffer. It may cost us a whole lot to live out our commission. Some of you, it is costing you a lot. But ultimately, the only thing that matters is being an instrument that He picks up and He gets music out of. That's it. It's the only thing that mattered to to Saul, to Paul, as he went forward. It should be the only thing that matters to us, to being an instrument that the one who created the world has chosen to play. You want to be an instrument that he has chosen to make the music of the Gospel come out of. What more could we want? What greater purpose could there be for our lives? I realize some of you, and I'll ask the band to go ahead and come back up to lead us in our final song, but I realize that some of you may hear this today and think, well, that's a really nice message for church people. You might hear this and think, that can never be for me. I can't change. I'm too far gone. I'm too old. That's a thing. I heard that from my grandfather who did become a Christian before he died. But when he started sniffing around the faith, there was a lot of that attitude. Nah, I'm too old. I'm too old to change. You might think you're too stubborn. You're too hard-headed. You might think, well, God is going to have to have a light at about noonday shine out of heaven all around me and knock me to my knees and make me blind and unable to eat for three days. That's what it's going to take for me to change, just like that's what it took for the Apostle Paul to change. Just remember that the gospel changed a wolf. That the same voice from heaven that filed down that wolf's teeth has spoken in his word. So you might not get a light that shines down from heaven, but you got an entire book from heaven. Where God says, let me tell you what I think of you. And let me tell you what to think of me. And let me tell you how to see this world. And let me tell you how to be saved. The voice that spoke this word to being... It's the same voice that took the legs out from that strong wolf on the road to Damascus. The voice from heaven that breathed this word out is the same voice from heaven that put that wolf on a leash. God made a lamb from a wolf. 
So I don't care what you've done or where you're at as you come in here this morning. God's power and God's grace, His love in the Gospel is so much bigger and so much greater and so much stronger than your past, than your present, than your stubbornness, than your sin. So repent. Do what we see Saul do. Change direction. Turn from your sin. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do that, you believe that salvation comes from Jesus alone, from dying on the cross for you, from rising from the grave. You put your faith in Him. You ask Him to save you. He will forgive you of your sin. He will give you eternal life. And you will be a new creature And you will have a new kinsman. And you will have a new commission. New life, new family, new purpose. You say, you're just promising the cotton candy world to me. No. Because just as Saul found out, he would have to suffer for this name. Oh, there's suffering in this life. This is not all peaches and cream. I'm not saying new life, new family, new commission, no problems. Absolutely not. Anyone who's been following the Lord Jesus that's in this room this morning can tell you there are problems. Can tell you cancer diagnosis, it still comes. The loss of family and friends, it still comes. The pain that comes from people hurting you, that still comes. All all that's still there. You're still living in this world. But you're not trapped by it. You're not lost in it. New life, new family, new purpose. Come to Christ today. Whatever the state of your heart may be, He will take it and He will transform it and He will make you a child of God, a lamb, a part of the church. Turn to Jesus. Father God, I thank You for Your Son Jesus and for the Gospel and for the truth that murderers like Paul can be forgiven and can not just be forgiven It's not like you saved the man and you said, well, I'll just put you over here on the sidelines. We'll keep you in the back room. Can't have you out front. Can't have have you doing anything in the church. Not after everything you've done. No, that you'll save a man like that and use him for the greatest of things in the church. To be arguably the greatest missionary that the church has ever known. Murderer to missionary, Lord. Wolf to lamb. So God, I I don't know, we could have all Christians in the room this morning, I don't know. And so praise God, and I pray that we would leave here with the gospel on our tongue, ready to go and tell. But Father, if there are people that do not know you, that are in this room, that today would be their Damascus road. That as they are reading the word this morning, the light would shine down from heaven in their hearts that they would look into Jesus' face and not see darkness, but see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to see the light of the Gospel. Open eyes up. Open up ears to hear You, to see You, to know You, to not go any further. If there's been people wondering, am I born again? I don't know. That they would stop wondering and put their trust in You today for salvation. Call people to repentance, Lord, through the power of your Spirit's voice and through the truth of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
If you would like to be saved and know the Lord Jesus Christ and you don't, I would love to speak with you as soon as the service is over. Uh, I will be around. Come and talk to me. Text or email us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. We will immediately get back with you so that we could talk to you uh, and, and we could engage with you about the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you text or email us now. We'll be back with you before the day's done. We will not wait. It will be priority number one for us to talk to you about the Lord Jesus. The day is the day of salvation. Let's stand up and let's sing together.